Now, uh, just one verse this morning, uh, this evening, uh, for reasons I will explain. Exodus chapter 28, verse 1, as the sermon text and as the beginning of a series on the priesthood. Exodus chapter 28, verse 1, the Lord saying uh, to Moses on the mountain, Now take Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as priest Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word, uh, and we are grateful indeed, uh, as we just many months ago concluded Hebrews to begin to consider the great argument of Hebrews now through the lens of Exodus as the priesthood is introduced to us. And we ask you, dear Lord, uh, that as we consider these subjects afresh, that you might equip your church to, especially with Hebrews in view, to heed the admonitions of that great epistle, to draw near into the throne room, the very throne room of heaven, by faith into the presence of God through the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And let us see, O God, that truly we do have a high priest, as the Jews did, and one that is so much better in every way. And may the preaching be of some aid uh, to our grasping this great truth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The subject that we've been considering broadly is the ceremonial law. Uh, in great detail, in fact, and the first uh, portion of that was the tabernacle itself, uh, which we looked at last time, the details of the tabernacle. In the following sermon, uh, after this one, we're going to look in a detailed way just at the garments of the high priest. Uh, it's amazing to see all of this detail. Uh, but here, in a general way, having considered the tabernacle, we're going to begin, as I say, a series of sermons in which we explore the priesthood. We have briefly, uh, or, or let me let me say uh, one more thing. The priesthood, those who inhabited and ministered in the tabernacle, that point was obvious, but let me just make it uh, clear. Uh, the priests are not introduced here, although their activity uh, really is. There's been a brief mentions of the presence and activity uh, of priests. You remember Melchizedek, for instance, and he comes up again in Hebrews. Well, he was earlier on. In, uh, in Genesis, but it's really here at this moment in the Bible that we first are introduced to their duty and their function and their office, Exodus chapter 28, verse 1. And then from that point on, uh, their ministry becomes central to the whole life, uh, the whole religious life of Israel for the remainder of the Old Testament. The reason I'm taking verse 1 on its own is because I want here at the outset to really consider the priesthood itself. What God meant when he said, you take this man and his sons, uh, Moses, and you make him a priest so that he may minister to me as priest. And then God tells him the manner in which he is to do so. It is impossible to understand what Israel was apart from the priesthood. Israel was a kingdom, but it was, as you remember, God saying in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, one of the 
crucial formulas of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, which carries in, by the way, to the New Covenant, that they were to be a kingdom of priests. And so you can never understand the theocratic kingdom of Israel unless you understand the priesthood of Israel. And how it was the priests in their ministry sustained and supported the people of God in their relationship to God. And so what I propose to do at the outset is to consider the priesthood uh, in general. Again, the function and the place of the priest. What God meant when he said that he may minister to me as priest. That single phrase is what I am expositing. And then we will consider the idea and the ministry of the priesthood in this order, following the order of the text, chapter 28 and chapter 29. There are three ideas about the priesthood, uh, and then I think we'll see others when we go beyond that as well. But these three are uh, the upcoming sermons, the priestly garments, chapter 28, the consecration of the priests, chapter 29, verses 1 through 37, and then the priestly offerings, chapter 29, Verses 38 through 45, the garments, the consecration and the offerings. But here again, we are considering the priesthood in general. Now, as we think about the idea of the priesthood, it's important that we do not confine this idea to the old covenant for the simple reason that we are told in Hebrews and in the New Testament that in Jesus we have a high priest. And something that I have argued repeatedly is that in the book of Hebrews, the author is not merely accommodating the gospel to a Jewish outlook, but he is using the very economy of God to describe the ministry of Jesus to us. And he says emphatically that Jesus Christ is our great high priest. It isn't a metaphor. It is a fact. And we are to see his salvation in light of his priesthood. And so we are told to think of, uh, of Jesus as our priest. And to the extent that we fail to do this, to grasp that we, like the Jews of old, have a priest, we rob ourselves of a true knowledge of Jesus Christ himself, our Savior, in the office and the relation he bears to us as his people. We impoverish our knowledge of our Savior. And again, our, the relation he bears to us and we to him. And so we become, as a result, strangers to him in his high heavenly priesthood, which uh, he is presently executing as he daily lives to make intercession for the people. And thus, uh, to, to grasp fully the argument of the book of Hebrews as a result of this, and this is the real tragedy, we will be strangers to his grace. Because it is as a priest that Jesus ministers grace to his people. And it is, again, insofar as we grasp him in his priesthood, that we are encouraged to draw near to him and to receive grace to help in time of need. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, just as he says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, which we read earlier. Well, the trouble is... Sadly, as I've said before, that we as Christian people, and I'm more or less borrowing from Hugh Martin, and I'll read a quote of his in a moment, we entertain vague notions as to the priesthood. Again, we fall into the fallacy of thinking that the priesthood was more or less an old covenant concept. And so we have some notion of it, but they're vague notions. And hopefully our study of Hebrews did much to dispel the vagueness as to these notions. But I will not pretend that we're suddenly experts on the priesthood. 
Uh, and here's the Hugh Martin quote. He laments that for so many, the idea of the priesthood, he says, conveys a mere figure of speech without any definite inquiry into what, even as a figure of speech, it means. If I were to ask you before preaching the sermon what you understand the priesthood to mean and the function of the priest to be, I wonder if you could answer the question. I certainly hope you, could, you can after this sermon. If, if we think of Exodus as a companion to Hebrews, which undoubtedly it is, we find uh, yet another opportunity uh, to get rid of uh, the, the vague notions and begin to have a definite inquiry into what, as a figure of speech, the priesthood means. And so our task is simply this, over the next four sermons, beginning in this sermon, and also continuing beyond those, first, those four sermons, and that is to familiarize ourselves with the idea of the priesthood. If only so that the glory of Christ, as our great high priest, might appear more plainly to us. And that as a result, we might, as Hebrews also says, uh, have confidence and boldness to draw near to him and to seek grace from him in heaven as our great high priest, seeing the kind of priest he is. If you look at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, for instance, you will see that is exactly the argument. Well, concerning the priesthood, I can think of no better book. Uh, I've already quoted it, uh, and I've, I've enjoyed uh, having it on my desk again and going through it again, uh, than Hugh Martin's work on the atonement. I know some of you have read it. I know... I, in fact, some of you, or have tried to read it, have told me it's, it's hard reading. It is. It's rewarding reading, though. Uh, and, and the real value of the book is not the way in which he describes the atonement, the way in which he describes the priesthood. That was the real value of the book to me. And in that work, he outlines, very helpful, the central aspects of the priesthood, which we find uh, in Aaron and his sons, and which we also find in Jesus. And there are three Aspects of the priesthood that all priests hold in common. And we already saw them in the text that we looked at. Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 5, and Hebrews chapter 8. The first of these is, the, is that the priesthood rests on a personal relation. A relationship between the priest and the people. That is the law of the office, Hugh Martin says. Which is stated in, in chapter 5, verse 1 of Hebrews. Every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. In fact, uh, all three points are found in that verse. But the key phrase there that I want to highlight is every high priest taken from men is appointed for men. The priest is chosen from among those he is called to represent. He doesn't stand above them. He stands beside them as he always did. And the nature of his office and ministry depend, uh, demands that he bears some relation to them or else he is unfit to represent them. And thus we read in Hebrews chapter 2 that Christ helps not angels but men insofar as he took hold of our nature becoming one like us. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11 14 and 17. I won't read those again, but we read verses 14 and 17 already. He became a man like us. He became one like us in order that he might be taken from among us in order to represent us. Likewise, Aaron and his sons were first among the people as Israelites before they were chosen to represent them. Every high priest is taken 
from among men is appointed for men. And his whole ministry as a priest depends on this relation. It's impossible apart from it. You cannot comprehend what is involved in the priesthood apart from this relationship between the priest and the people. All that he does and performs in the presence of God by way of sacrifice and intercession, he does for men and for their sins. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 1 and Hebrews chapter 5 verse 3. It is the relation he sustains to them covenantally that makes him fit to represent them in the presence of God and to make offerings and intercession on their behalf. The fact that they are, and we're going to see this in the priestly garments, by the way, in the next sermon, the way that they are comprehended in him. And he uh, representing them. Another thing that we see along the lines of this first point is that because he is one of them, he's one like them, he's one with the people he represents as a priest, he is also likewise afflicted with the same infirmities of the flesh, which they are. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 2. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness, the infirmities of the flesh. And as a result, every high priest, and indeed every priest, is full of sympathy toward those he represents. He doesn't go into the presence of God with a feeling, again, of superiority as one who stands above the people, but he goes into the presence of God as one of the people, and thus with a feeling of sympathy and a fellow feeling of love and humanity toward the people he represents. He is one of them. Now, of Christ. The same thing is said in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Christ is one who partook of our humanity and even now partakes of our humanity so that his heart is full of a fellow feeling of humanity towards his people. A feeling of sympathy. When uh, when it says even that uh, the priest is subjected to uh, the weakness and the infirmity of the flesh, I would not represent Christ now as one who is subjected to the weakness and the infirmity of the flesh. But certainly in the days of his flesh, the days he dwelt among uh, us, it was. Thus he says in chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, uh, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. There, as in uh, chapter 4.15 and chapter 2.18, he is speaking of a man, a human like us, who was tempted. And who in that temptation was beset with weakness. Though, praise be to God, he never wants to come to any of that temptation and the weakness of the flesh. And so his sympathy, uh, if you think of it, and, and I'm borrowing from something I'm going to say in a little while, his sympathy is matched with power. Much unlike uh, the priest of the old covenant. But we'll save that for later on. The second thing that we notice about the priest is the relation they bear to God. The relation they bear to the people, number one. The relation they bear to God, number two. That he may minister to me as a priest. That's the line we're expositing. It's the relationship primarily uh, to God that is being emphasized here. 
in Exodus chapter 28, verse 1. And that actually becomes a common refrain of these verses. His whole ministry on behalf of men, as one who is chosen from among them in order to appoint them, is performed in the presence of God and unto God. The direction of his ministry is ever Godward. His ministry is to me, God says. And so its direction and its focus as the people are comprehended in the person of the priests has God as its object. And thus we read in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17 that in all things he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Likewise, in chapter 5, verse 1, we see the same truth. Every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Who is he offering to? He's offering these things to God in things pertaining to God. So also, in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 3, though it is unstated, it is obvious that the act of offering Gifts and sacrifices has the same Godward focus. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Uh, therefore, it is, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. Offer to whom? To God. To God. What about uh, this, this phrase, things pertaining to God? Which we saw in chapter uh, 2.17 and chapter 5 verse 1. The things that pertain to God are the things about God with which he has to deal on behalf of the people, such as the wrath of God, the holiness of God, the justice of God, and the love of God. And it is the express purpose of the priesthood to be able to deal with these things, to propitiate his wrath, for instance. We saw that in chapter 2, verse 17. Only the priest is equipped to do this, to satisfy the justice of God, to express the love of God to guilty sinners. Things which the people left to themselves in their sins are not equipped to do. I should have also added to minister the grace of God to the people. These are the things which pertain to God and which have relevance to the people and are made available to the people through the priest. Another way that this point stands out that uh, the priest bears a relationship to God is that no one takes the priesthood unto himself, not even Jesus Christ. The people do not appoint him on their behalf. The man does not appoint himself. It is God himself who appoints the priests on behalf of the people. Now, this is something which is stated once again in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. Every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men. In things pertaining to God. Likewise, verses 4 through 6 of the same chapter. No man takes this honor to himself. But he who is called by God, just as Aaron was, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. But, was, but it was he who said to him, this is the father speaking, you are my son today, I have begotten you. And he also says in another place, you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And this is the implied thought throughout Exodus 28, 29 and following, that it is the Lord who appoints Aaron. He tells Moses to do so. He doesn't, in other words, ask Moses, as perhaps he did in other places in choosing the elders or later in the New Testament in choosing the deacons. He doesn't say, Moses, whom do you choose? 
No, the Lord says, this is whom I choose. And then his family afterwards. And so that appointment stands throughout the generations. And the same thing is seen in Jesus Christ, whom we read, does not take this honor upon himself, but he is called and appointed by the Father as a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. It's also here that the ideas we'll see in the next sermon uh, of the garments and the consecration come in. All of this is what gives the priest the authority and the boldness to minister in the presence of God effectively. It is because the place that he holds there in the, ho- in the most holy place comes by God's own appointment and thus by God's own invitation. The high priest is not one who invited himself in, nor does he equip himself for the task. It all comes from God directly and immediately. And thus, as one called and equipped by God, he is fit and he is confident and he is able to enter into the most holy place in the presence of God on behalf of the people. And so we see the relation he bears to God. But then thirdly, again, these are the three points which you'll find in Hugh Martin's book. We see the priestly action that he takes. What is the activity of the priest and especially of the high priest, but of all priests in in general? And it is that of offering. This is what we saw again in chapter 2, chapter 5, chapter chapter 8. That is uh, the only idea that is not explicitly stated in Hebrews chapter 28, verse 1, but it is implied. It is implied. And it later uh, becomes clear in chapter 29. But when God says that he may minister to me as priest, what he's saying is that he may perform uh, the offerings and he might give uh, the sacrifices or make the sacrifices. And so that is the ministry in view. But as I say, this point is made explicit in these great summary statements in Hebrews chapter 5, uh, verse 1, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, verse 3. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. You see it as well in chapter 8, verse 3, and chapter 2, verse 17. I don't need to read those again. The action which the priests take in his, high, in, 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 his, in his priestly service and his priestly office on behalf of the people unto God is that of sacrifice. And it is a sacrifice with view to propitiation, chapter 2, verse 17, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Or, more simply, atonement. What he is seeking to do is to deal with the guilt of sin. Hugh Martin says, to act as a priest is to offer. What is in view in the act of sacrifice, again, is the removal of sin. And in particular, removal of the guilt that is associated with sin. And thus, the writer to the Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Chapter 9, verse 22. And it is this remission that is in view. The forgiveness or the pardoning of sin. He sacrifices for sins, we read. That is, for the sins of those whom he represents. Not sin indiscriminately, but the sins of the people. Specific remission for specific persons. He is appointed for men to make sacrifices for their sins in the presence of God. Likewise, what he offers unto God must be seen as an act of intercession. Whereby he seeks from God something for the people. Namely, again, remission of sins. Intercession is not seen, therefore, as a separate aspect of his priestly action, but as involved and of the very essence 
of the act of offering. To offer is to intercede. Just as the intercession is made on the basis of what is offered. And his intercession as a priest is effective to the extent that what he offers to God, God accepts as a true atonement for sin. But having seen these three points, the relation he bears to the people, to God, and his action as a priestly intercessor who offers sacrifices for sins. These three things which describe the nature and the function of the priesthood, three, uh, three points which all priests hold in common and therefore points of similarity between Christ and Aaron and his sons, we should also notice as a second major point, also under three headings, that these same points also form important points of contrast between Aaron, Aaron's priesthood and the priesthood of Jesus Christ. A thought which is captured in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 11 when he says, Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, that's the priesthood we're beginning to consider in Exodus 28 verse 1. If perfection were through that priesthood, he says, what further need was there that another priest should should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? And so what he's saying is that with the emergence of Christ in his priesthood, something different fundamentally is happening. The emergence of what God had promised through Jeremiah of a new covenant, not the old covenant extended, but something radically new found in the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And so for all of the similarities between Aaron and Jesus Christ, there were also important differences. The most obvious, as we see here, and I don't really want to spend any more time on this, is that Christ belonged to a different order, not that of Aaron, but that of Melchizedek. In fact, Christ didn't even come out of the line of Levi. He came out of the line of Judah. And so in, the, in that sense, he was unfit to be a minister in the old covenant sanctuary, but he was never meant to minister there. He comes out of a different line and he emerges as part of a different order. But that is, again, not to deny these three points that we just considered. For all, uh, all priests share these three things in common. But it is to say that the priesthood he bears and thus the relation that he bears to us and to God and the offerings that he make, or excuse me, not in the plural but in the singular, the offering he makes all are of a different and more excellent kind. These three points are perfected in the most excellent way in Jesus Christ. First, we see the relation he bears to us is stressed in the book of Hebrews. Again, in chapter two and then in chapter four, verse 15, that Jesus Christ was taken from among us because he became one like us. But here is the amazing thing that we are called to consider as we think of the priesthood of Jesus Christ, and it is simply the fact, as he states in chapter 2 of Hebrews, that he, of all people, should help us. That he, of all people, should take hold of our nature in order that he might help us. And who is he? Well, he is the Son of God. I don't have time to read it, but that's how the book of Hebrews begins. All of chapter 1 is a testimony to the eternal sonship of the Son of God. And it is about him of all people that it is said that he has taken hold of us, that he might help us. Not angels, but men. What is man that you are mindful of him? And how can that be that the very eternal son of God should help man except that he partook of our flesh and blood 
And he, and he, as he says in Hebrews chapter 2, sought to call us brothers. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. He became one like you and me. And in this he bears the same relation that Aaron and his sons did to the sons of Israel. One of identity and covenant oneness. One of sympathy, one of fellow humanity. Or fellow feelings of humanity. And yet, even then, we can say and we can see that he, on this point, far excels Aaron. For he does this. He identifies with us in our humanity, not merely as a man, but as the God-man. And as a result, all of the weaknesses inherent in Aaron's ministry are not present in Jesus' ministry. Jesus, in his humanity, though he was able to bear the sins of the people in the flesh of his humanity, had no sin of his own. That was never true of Aaron and his sons. He is able to represent us in the beauty and perfection of a holiness all his own. Not one which is crafted and put on as with the priestly garments, but one which is intrinsic and one which is personal. For such a high priest, he says, chapter 7, verse 26, uh, for such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Nor indeed was he prevented from death from continuing to bear this relation to us because he continues forever to hold his office as a priest. Chapter 7 verses 23 and 24. And because this is so, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Chapter 7 verse 25. I'm going to just have to start giving you the verses. I don't have time to read them all. Let us see, beloved. That his ministry to us is one that is incomparably greater than that of Aaron. On this first point alone, we find him presented to us in Hebrews as one who is full of power, yes, but also sympathy. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. Likewise, and obviously, we see his superiority in the relation that he bears to God, one which is all the greater, since he is God's very own son. Not only does God declare of him, chapter 5, verse 6, you are, uh, you are my son, today I have begotten you. But also, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And it is these two together that form the basis of his eternal ministry in the presence of God. Not simply his eternal priesthood, but his eternal sonship. Indeed, if we were to ask which of these two held the priority, we would have to say certainly the sonship of God, of the Son of God. For it is, as a pre, it is not as a priest, but as a son that is placed before the Father is eternal. Again, of him, the father says, you are my son. But as a son, he is appointed a priest. And thus, all that is true of him as a son is true of him now as a priest. God accepts and delights in his priesthood every bit as much as he accepts and delights in his person as his son. And thus, his appointment as a priest is an act and expression of that love which he has for the son. And in this way, he stands in the presence of God at the throne of grace and is met by continual acceptance and love and delight in his priesthood. Which is why he can save us to the uttermost. It's because of who he is. And it's because of who he is to the Father. 
and why we are able to come to God through him. It is because God, in appointing him a priest forever, appointed him to represent the elect for all eternity, granting them a place in the holiest place in the presence of God alongside the Son. And while this does nothing to enhance the standing of the Son before the Father, he does not take up the office of a priest for his own sake. He didn't need to. It does everything to enhance our standing at that place. For now, the very one who ministers before the Father, just think of this, as a priest for us, is the very Son of God. And just try to think of the relation that he, unlike Aaron, bears to God. For Christ has not entered the holy place uh, made with hands, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And who is this again? This is the Son of God. And it is Him and no other who appears in the presence of God for us. And that is what gives us confidence, beloved, that He and no other is able to save us to the uttermost. It is, again, the relation that He bears to God. It is that there is no one whom whom God delights in more than His own Son. No one whom He accepts and loves and delights in more than His own Son. So the relation he bears to God, we see, is one of perfect harmony and delight and acceptance. And all that is true of him is true of his priesthood. And when you understand that such such aspects are true of his priesthood, you will see why it is that there isn't a single soul whom Christ proposes to save and to represent, whom the Father will reject. All of them surely will be saved, and he is able to save them to the uttermost. But lastly... We see his superiority in what he offers. Like Aaron, he has something to offer. And like him, the strength of his intercession depends on what is offered. But unlike him, what he offers is incomparably greater. Not the blood of bulls and goats, but his own blood. Even uh, the blood of the Son of God, the God-man. Repeatedly, this is the contrast that is made in Hebrews I'll just read uh, two selections. Hebrews chapter chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Uh, well, I, I, I don't have time. Chapter 10, verse 4. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. He says that's chapter 10, verse 4. But triumphantly, he says in verses 11 through 14, every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. In Hebrews chapter 9, we see him saying the offering was himself. He offered himself for the sins of the people. He shed his own blood. And surely we can see once we recognize who this priest and who this sacrifice was. That his blood is better. The blood of one whose life is indestructible. The blood of the one whom the father loved most. Will the father not accept his blood? Will the father not delight in that blood shed for us? And so it is on this basis That we read chapter 5 verse 9. That he provides for the elect an eternal salvation. Not a temporary salvation. 
We're not waiting for another sacrifice. We're not waiting for another offering. He has done all in his one act of offering. And thus he is able, once more, let me say it again, chapter 7, verse 25, to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. That's what it means to have a priest. It is to draw near through him as our Savior. And the strength of his eternal intercession, which is in fact the emphasis of that verse, he ever lives to intercede for us. Because of this, he's able to save us to the uttermost. The strength of that intercession is seen to rest not only on the glory of his person and the relation that he stands to the Father as the Son of God, but also upon the strength of that once-for-all sacrifice. It stands forever in heaven as an eternal memorial and intercession for the people. For the sins of the people, I mean. Something which really succeeds in putting away sin. And because this is so, let me say again, it stands forever in heaven as an effectual intercession. And so we will ever praise the Lamb who was slain for our sins. This becomes, in other words, the basis of a salvation that we can never lose. No more than Christ himself as our priest can lose his place there before the throne of grace as our great high priest and as the very son of God. And the effect of seeing this is stated once more in Hebrews chapter 4 verses 14 and 15 and 16. It is that seeing that we have a great high priest in Jesus and the kind of priest uh, he is. In all of the ways I've been describing. Similar in so many ways to the priests of old. And yet different and better and perfect in all the ways they failed us. We become confident that he is able to save us. Seeing the kind of priest we have. We become confident in his salvation. Even unto the full assurance of hope unto the end. And that because of his priesthood. We realize that we are now, even now, able to draw near to God through him. Thus what he says in chapter 4, verse 16, chapter 9, excuse me, chapter 10, verses 19 through 23. We are able to draw near to God even now through him. But none of this, you see, makes any sense, nor will we ever make any use of this great privilege as Christian people until we learn what it means to say we have a priest in heaven and his name is Jesus. Amen. And, uh, and with, with God's help, God willing, we will go on to consider this subject further in the sermons to come. Let us stand together and sing, Jesus, my great high priest, hymn number 222.